Amen. Let's look at Judges, can we? Chapter number 14. Um, here's, I think I left this on your little study sheet. One of the glaring characteristics so far that we're seeing in Samson's life is that he has a complete lack of concern for God's will in his life. Samson was called to be a Nazarite, which was a special servant of God in the Jewish community from before he was born. He was still in his mother's womb, and he was to be a Nazarite. Uh, He wasn't to drink wine. He wasn't even to eat grapes. He wasn't to cut his beard. He wasn't to cut his, his hair. Uh, He was, the Bible said, he was to be separated to God for his whole life. Normally, the Nazarite vow lasted about a month, about 30 days. But with, with, with Samson, he was to be a Nazarite for his whole life. And we looked at last week, uh, he saw the beginning of chapter 14, he saw this Philistine woman. He was smitten with her. He went down to this city called Timnath, and this lady just caught his eye and and he was smitten with her, and so much so that he told his mother and father, um, you need to get her for me to marry. Arranged marriages back in that day, and I tried to talk my kids into letting us take care of their, you know, selecting their mates. They're not buying it. None of our daughters, none of, and not our son. Uh, but back in this day, that's just what you did. Mom and dad found, and you see that all through the scripture. And so he says, get, get her for me for a wife. That's in the first three verses. His parents at first rejected a little bit. You remember that? And they said, why, can't, why do you always look outside the nation of Israel? And so they gave in. They made the arrangements for the marriage. While they're going down on this first trip, the first trip they make to Timnath, they're going to, they're going to negotiate the dowry. On the way, Samson uh, is confronted by a lion. And the Bible says he kills the lion with his bare hands, goes down to Timnath. When he's coming back, he stops by and he sees a bunch of bees buzzing around this lion. He looks in there. They, the bees have made a lion in, or made a hive rather, in the lion carcass. Being a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch any dead body, but he does. He touches the body of this dead lion, scoops out honey. He's eating that. Um, his intentions toward this Philistine woman, his deception of his parents on where he got the honey, all of these things show he could care less about what God has to say about his life. Samson's living a life for himself. Whatever he wants to do, wherever he wants to go, uh, that's how he's living it. So I'm going to, I entitled this tonight, A Gambler's Tale. His whole life, what he's doing is gambling with his testimony as a Nazarite Jew. He's not just a child of God in that he's a Jew. The Jews were God's chosen people. But even deeper than that, he was a Nazarite who was supposed to serve God his whole life. And part of serving God is following God's, God's word. Samson could have cared less about it. So here's, here's our, our sentence here for our introduction. Samson was a man headed for trouble. He is a warning to those who like to skate near the edge to see how much they can get away with without immediate consequence. You know what I think happened to Samson? I think Samson started making choices in his life, and he said, well, God God really didn't punish me for doing that, and so he'd take it a little bit further. And he did this often. Watch his life from, from chapter number 13 
on, watch his life. He just keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. He does that because he's not suffering any immediate consequence. He's just seeing how much he can get away with. You have to remember this. There's a, there's a verse in the scripture that says, it's better if we don't make a vow to God at all, rather than to make a vow to God and break it. Samson didn't know anything about that, that verse. He could have cared less about the vow that he made. God expects us to keep those things. He expects us, it says in 1 Peter 1.16, he expects us to be holy because he's holy. He calls us to a certain way to live. If we're going to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, then live a life that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect, not hardly. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. There's no way to do that. But we ought to model what we see in Jesus. And one of the ways we do that And I didn't know how else to put it, and it seems with Samson's life, this seems like the right way to put it, we ought not to flirt with evil. Samson did that a lot. He flirted with evil. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 says that we're to come out from evil and be separate. Come out from people and be separate, saith the Lord. Don't touch unclean things. For you or I, if we'd have saw that, that beehive in, the, in that dead carcass of a lion, well, I wouldn't have gone near it. Maybe you would have. I've had bad experience with beehives, so if I'd have saw it, I'd have said, keep the honey. I'd have just kept walking. But if you or I went up to that lion's carcass and scooped honey out of there, that wouldn't be a problem for you and I to touch that dead animal. But for a Nazarite, for this person that's supposed to be a special servant of God in the Jewish community, it absolutely was a lawbreaker. When he touched that dead body, that dead body, ceremonially, he became unclean. And there was a whole process he should have gone through to make that right and get back into the Nazarite vow. And, and he could have, uh, but, he, but he didn't. So we are not to flirt with evil, but we are to actively pursue righteousness. Follow these things, Paul would write to Timothy. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we won't take the time to to read it, but 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, calls us to, instead of seeing how close we can come to the line, 1 Peter 3 says, just follow after God. If, If God does it, do it. If God doesn't do it, don't do it. If God loves it, love it. If God hates it, hate it. Whatever God is doing, do it like him. Pursue righteousness, don't flirt with evil. So Samson, when we come to Judges chapter 14, we're going to start at verse number 10. Samson and his family, they're here for the wedding. The dowry's already been negotiated. It's been worked out. Now they're here for a wedding, and, and they're going to involve a wedding feast. Now, um, there are different types of things that take place at weddings today. Sometimes you go to a wedding, and the reception is um, a snack. It's a, let's be honest, it's just a glorified snack. But then if you get invited to the right wedding, whew, they're going to have a they're going to have a meal and a half. Uh, we got uh, we we got uh, we uh, we didn't crash the wedding. I shouldn't say that. We happened to be in Michigan when my nephew got married here a couple years ago and they had their wedding at the Detroit Institute of Art and um, they had a 2-year waiting list to get in there and we sat down for that meal. It was like, do you want this cut of beef or do you want this cut of chicken? And I'm like, I really, I'm an uncle, so I shouldn't have to choose. I should get one of each, but I didn't. But man, when we sat down at that meal, that was a good meal to sit down to. I got the beef. It was just falling off. It was a great thing. 
But it was over in about an hour and a half, and we were done. This wedding feast they're going to talk about in this thing went seven days. They had a week-long wedding feast. At least 30 people had been invited, and the groom's family, the groom's family, not the bride, footed the whole bill. Seven days to wine and dine these people, and this was their wedding feast. So Samson, Samson's going to, to reveal some things to us in here tonight, but I want you to see that there's a price to pay when we gamble with obedience to God. There's a price to pay when we gamble with our Christian testimony. We might think we get away with things, but we really don't. You know, our, others may not see it, but always remember that God sees things in the dark just as easily as he does in the light. So we have to watch out for this. Samson gambled with his testimony, and he lost. He lost big time. Let's read these verses. Can we start at verse number 10 in Judges 14, and we'll go down through verse 20. So his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made there a feast, for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If ye can certainly declare it me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 change of garments. Um, 30 sheets are undergarments and 30 garments are the outer clothes. He's going to give them a full, he'll give each one of these 30 guys who brought, they got brought to this thing. I'll give each one of you a brand new suit of clothes. But verse 13, if ye cannot declare it me, then ye shall give me 30 sheets and 30 change of garments. And they said unto him, put forth thy riddle that we may hear it. And he said unto them, out of the eater came forth meat. And out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound that riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband, that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that we have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people, and hast not told it to me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it to my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her, because she lay sore upon him. And and she told the riddle to the children of her people. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. We're going to come back to that last phrase. Verse number 19, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, on Samson. He went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them, and took their spoil and gave and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. There is a, boy, there's a lot of drama going on in this story. So what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to look at this gamble that he's taking. We're going to Uh, begin with verses 10 and 11, and let's first talk about Samson's wedding. Samson's wedding. 
The Bible says in verse number 10 that his father went down unto the woman and Samson made there a feast. Uh, The reason his father had to go is because his father was footing the bill. And they made a feast for so used the young men to do. This is what they did in that day. So the first thing under the wedding I'd like you to see is the tradition that's involved. There's a tradition going on. For so used the young men to do. This is a culturally traditional Middle Eastern wedding. That's what verse number 10 is telling us. There are some things that mark that wedding. In fact, if this was a strictly Jewish wedding, there are some things that mark that wedding. For example, the groom and his family provide the wedding feast. The length of the feast and how good the food is is dependent on the wealth of the family. Well, this thing goes for a week. So there's some indicators that Samson's mom and dad were well-to-do. This was quite a wedding feast going on. Another thing was the groom's family, not the bride's family, the groom's family planned the wedding out. They negotiated a dowry that the groom's family would give to the bride's family, and the price of that dowry was to offset her the, the father's loss of what that bride, that daughter, contributed to the Uh, to the workload of the family. I have two daughters that have been married. Nobody's given me anything for what we lost in our household, you know. There are some things I would like to bring out of the Bible. I say bring these traditions back. Um, On this one, they would pay the bride's father for the loss of her productivity in the home. Somebody was going to have to do the work that she had done in their household. Another thing that marked that was they had what, and you've heard this before, especially we hear about it at Christmas time, we hear about the betrothal period. We don't compare that to our Western idea of an engagement because it's not even close. When, when the man and the woman became betrothed, and usually that was a year or so before the wedding, when they became betrothed, you, you've heard this before, that was such a binding contract that for them to separate that, they had to get a divorce. They were already, her possessions already were assimilated into the household. They had, uh, they had a, a joint account, if you will, during the betrothal. So tight was that bond that, uh, that a divorce was needed to break it. And it's there during this uh, betrothal period, the groom would prepare a place to live. He would usually add to his dad's house. They'd just extend the father's house, and they'd go home, and they lived, they had a compound as a family. During the betrothal period, while the groom is building a house for them on his father's property, she is making her wedding dress, and she's preparing for the arrival of the groom that's going to eventually come get her. And that was a big deal, too, because unannounced, he would show up a lot of times at night. He'd show up with a bunch of his friends, and they'd be celebrating, and they'd be blowing ram's horns, and it was, a no, it was a noisy arrival, and he would come and announce that he had come for his bride. And she would have to stay ready during that betrothal period for any time for her groom to show up. So he'd do that. That was a traditional, and, and then he would, he would take his bride, and uh, they would leave, and then the wedding festivities would begin. Now, that was a traditional Jewish procedure. He was marrying a Gentile, right? He's marrying a woman from Timnath who is a Philistine. So there were some differences there. 
For example, when he comes to the wedding feast, he didn't bring a bunch of friends to claim his bride, did he? In fact, the Philistines had to provide 30 of them. The Bible says, uh, the Bible says that there were 30 companions that were brought uh, there in, where is it at? Verse number 11, it came to pass when they saw him that they, the Philistines in that community of Timnath, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. So there's one difference, he didn't bring any family with him. Another difference was that the, the wedding feast apparently preceded the marriage here before it would follow it. But aside from those differences, you had this wedding, and that's what it looked like. So he had his family with him. I said a moment ago he didn't have any family. He had family with him, but he had no friends. So these Philistine friends were provided for him. So now he's got 30 groomsmen. We would call them groomsmen. So he's got 30 of them now. That's the tradition that was involved. There was a traditional wedding. It says in verse number 10, for so used the young men to do. This is how they did it. And then there's the typology here. And I won't spend a whole lot of time here. Let me start this off by saying this. Samson is not a good picture of Christ at all. So don't confuse this. But the way the Jews structured their wedding is really a clear parallel to the return of Jesus Christ for his bride called the church. There's a lot of parallels in it. Um, today, and I, like I said, I've married off two daughters so far. The bride does all the work, and the bride's parents pay for that shindig. But in the Jewish wedding, that was all on the groom. The groom did all the work. The groom's family paid for everything. That's how it is. Jesus, the bridegroom, in John 14 says, I go to my father. I'm going to prepare a place for you there. He's preparing a place for us. He purchased us uh, almost like giving a dowry. He gave himself for us. The Bible says he bought us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's preparing a place in the father's house. When the time is right, he's going to come. And just like that groom could show up anytime and unexpectedly, Jesus Christ can show up anytime and unexpectedly. And when Jesus comes, these, these friends would come shouting and blowing ram's horns. What does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tell us about the return of Christ? There's the shout. There's the tr- shout of the archangel, the trump of God. It's going to be a noisy affair when Jesus Christ comes back. What follows when Jesus comes and he captures his bride and takes us to heaven, what follows? According to Revelation chapter 19, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wonderful parallel in the way the Jews set up their wedding and their celebrations with the return of Jesus Christ for his bride. That's the typology that's involved. I'm sharing that with you because that's what awaits you and I as the bride of Christ. His unexpected, predicted, but unexpected coming his taking us to a place he's prepared, and then the marriage supper, the Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, the typology that's involved. But let's, let's move on and go to this last part, the temptation, the temptation that's involved. We've talked about before that every word in the Bible is inspired by God, and so there are specific words. The Hebrew language is a very specific language, and when you come to verse number... 10, and it uses the word feast. Would you mark that word in there? 
we're talking about the temptation that's involved. In verse number 10, you see the word feast, and it's the Hebrew word mishta, and it literally means a feast with wine. A feast with wine. It's not, it's very specific. He held a feast in enemy territory with at least 30 Philistines, probably more. These were just those that were dedicated as his companions. And this is a mishta. It is a feast with wine. As a Nazarite, he had no business hosting such a party. He was, he was forbidden as a Nazarite to drink wine. He was not to touch it. In fact, you remember what it says back in, uh, back in the law. It said he wasn't to eat the, drink the fruit of the vine, nor was he to eat grapes. And you remember the third thing? He was not to eat dried grapes. So strict was this vow, he couldn't even have raisins. And here he is hosting, paying for this feast that, uh, that was centered around wine. Again, he's just gambling with his testimony. There's a, there's a, a former, uh, former pastor. He's in heaven now. His name's John Butler. And he said, this is what John Butler said about this particular activity, this wine-centered feast. He said, why would one who insisted upon a God-forbidden marriage and who unhesitatingly ventured into vineyards and who scrupled not to take honey from a carcass of an unclean animal have any compunction about dining with wine at a feast with 30 other men. What what is he saying? Why would Samson care if there's wine there? He hasn't paid attention to anything else God has said. And so here he is at at this feast, and inch by inch he just keeps trespassing against all these things that God set up for him and said, God, God said, I don't want you to do these things. And Samson just knocks those down like dominoes. The point here is this. Once we start flirting with sin, it's hard to find a stopping place. And before long, we will indulge desires that we never thought we would. There's that message that a guy named Randy Ray preached. And I have heard a lot of preachers take credit for this. But the man who first preached it was a pastor named Randy Ray, who pastored Metropolitan Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And he entitled it, Three Characteristics of Sin. There have been gospel songs written on his outline. It is a fantastic passage of, uh, uh, or, or sermon about uh, sin. And here's what he said, his three main points. In fact, he told us, when I heard him preach it, <coughs> excuse me, he said, I don't want anybody taking notes. He said, because you'll never forget the points of this sermon. I heard that sermon in 1982. And I've never forgotten the outline of that sermon. And the outline of that sermon is this. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's the three characteristics of sin. And if there is an Old Testament character that demonstrates that, it's Samson. His sin's going to take him further than he wants to go. It will keep him longer than he wants to stay. And it will cost him more than he wants to pay. Ultimately, it's going to cost him his life. Well, Samson 
Samson flushes this out for us. This is why sin is compared to leprosy in the Old Testament. The the treatment for leprosy back in the book of Leviticus, it's it's, it's a wonderful picture of sin, leprosy is. The way it spreads, the way it deepens, and the way it grows. That's what sin does. So that statement again, once we start flirting with sin, it's hard, it, it's hard to find the stopping place. And before long, we will find ourselves indulging desires that we never thought we would. Don't mess around with sin. This is the main lesson from this tonight. First is Samson's wedding. This is what's going on here. So it should be, right? Weddings I've never been to one that was a downer. Weddings ought to be a joyous occasion. People ought to be happy there. So that's Samson's wedding. Why isn't it a happy occasion? A seven-day feast? How'd you like to go somewhere where they accommodate you for... You're going to a wedding. They pay for you to go, and they pay for you to eat all you want to eat for seven days. It's all on them. That's a pretty good deal. That should be a joyous occasion. And yet it's going to go south in a hurry. In fact, it's going to go south so bad, Samson calls the wedding off. Forget this, I'm out. Well, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's not just the wedding. Second thing, verses 12 through 18, Samson's wager. His wager. I'll use a word here we don't use very often, but it used to be used a lot. Um, This first thing about Samson is Samson's gall. Some of you, you've heard that before. You've heard that word gall. It means audacity, the rude audacity of a person, an arrogant boldness, Samson's gall. He's keeping all of these people wined and dined for a week, and it's expensive, and he's, his family's putting it out. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I keep these people entertained for this long? How can I maybe get some of my money back? And so he... And it was common in this culture. He comes up with a riddle. There's two different cultures being wedded here. Uh, there is the Jewish culture and the Philistine culture. They're being married. And so I don't know if there was some tension between those two cultures or not. But maybe he's using this for some kind of an icebreaker, this riddle. But riddles and, and questions that required thought, they were often used in these social events like this. Do you remember when the Queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon? Remember that first time she came there and, and she saw Solomon? Solomon at that time was the richest man in the world. He was sitting on an ivory throne that was overlaid with gold. He had six lions on either side of his throne, solid gold. I mean, if anybody flaunted their wealth, it would have been King Solomon. He had 200 shields made out of solid gold, military shields made and stored in the temple, and at times would pull his army out and he would array them with these gold shields. That's an impressive amount of wealth. The Bible says that when Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, that she proved him or tested him with hard questions. Because not only was he the richest man in the world at that time, he was also the wisest man in the world. And the Bible says she rolled out these hard questions for him, testing him. So maybe that's what he's doing here. He rolls out this riddle, and his riddle is based on that encounter he had with the lion. He killed the lion. 
And there was honey in there, went back later, ate that honey. And so he puts this riddle out, and I think it just reveals the hardness of his heart. This is my opinion. I think it reveals the hardness of his heart that he's making a joke about breaking the law of God. I'd be careful about I'd be careful about people that joke about sin. And that's what Samson's doing here. He's joking about sin. And in fact, the Bible says this, fools make a mock of sin. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what he's doing. I put on your worksheet, we experience real spiritual problems when we are no longer affected by our sin. Jer- uh, Jeremiah writes an interesting verse in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 12. He says this, talking about the children of Israel in their rebellion against God. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them flat in the time of their visitation. They shall be cast down, saith the Lord. That's a pretty interesting statement. They were so used to sinning, so used to rebelling against God, the Bible says they couldn't blush. They weren't embarrassed to sin. Here is Samson who, here's Samson who, he's joking about his sin, publicly joking at his wedding about his sin. You know, when Christians, when, when we sin, we ought to be looking for an opportunity to repent. There ought to be something that drives us to, to say, God, I, I messed that up. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our hearts ought to break when we dishonor the Lord by what we say or what we do. Not Samson. He, boy, he just boldly, he kept breaking God's law, and now he's even joking about it. That's his gall. That's his audacity. That's his rude boldness to not only sin, but to joke about that sin. The second thing is his greed. His greed. Verses 12 and 13 say that he, he, put forth, he puts forth this riddle and uh, he makes a wager. And it's a simple wager here. The winner gets, the winner or the loser rather, has to put up 30 suits of clothes. Now if they lose, if the 30 of them lose, each one of them have to provide uh, Samson a new outfit, so he gets 30 outfits. If he loses, then he has to himself put out 30 outfits. So it's a pretty big wager for him, but it's a simple wager. You've got one week, you've got seven days to solve this riddle, the length of the feast. Simple wager, but it's an expensive bet. It's an expensive bet. Samson's trying to make out with a lot of money without working for it. Let me just pause here, and, and I know that this doesn't go over well in a state that does a lot of it, a lot of gambling, but Christians ought to really examine their involvement when it comes to gambling. I want you to think about something. The, what's the goal, the ultimate goal of the Christian life? What is the ultimate goal of the Christian life? Romans chapter 8, verse number 29, it's that I will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Right? that I will be made as best I can in this life and fully in the next, that I will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Here is a truth about gambling that is not disputable. 
This is just a fact. And if, if this is just a fact, there's just no way around this. The only way I win at gambling is if you lose. I need you to lose so I can win. Why is there a $900 million, uh, $900 million pot in a lottery out there? It's because somebody lost a lot of money. The only way I win, does that make sense? The only way I win is if you don't. So when I buy my ticket or scratch or whatever I'm doing, when I do that, I'm hoping that you lose. In fact, if it's $900 million, I really want you to lose. I, I can't tell you how bad I want you to lose if it's $900 million. Now ask yourself this question. Does that sound anything like Jesus Christ? Does that? I, I don't think gambling's right because the only way I profit, well, there's several reasons I don't, but the only way I profit is if somebody else suffers a loss. You know what they found in study after study after study when it comes to gambling, who is, who is buying the tickets? You know what they found? They found it's the people that don't have the money to gamble. It's not the guy who's making 250000 a year that's buying lottery tickets. It's people who don't have it. I, and, and look, I know, I know that there's no verse, there's no commandment that says thou shalt not gamble. I, I'll give you that. But can I just ask you to consider some scriptural principles that absolutely warn against that. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, first of all, the Bible warns us against the love of money. The Bible never says money is the root of all evil. It doesn't. There are some people that God gives a lot of money to. Look at Job. Look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were very wealthy men. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, those two sisters and a brother that were close friends of Jesus, I think they were significant supporters of his ministry. Probably very well to do. Money's not the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, be careful about loving money warns against that it's the root of all evil hebrews chapter 13 and verse number five warns us against coveting 10th commandment thou shalt not covet it says don't covet and one of the most glaring warnings against gambling in the scripture is the warning and the prohibition of being involved in what today we would call get rich quick schemes we won't have time to turn there, but if, you did, if I didn't write these down, you can write them down, check, check out later. You should. The Bible says you should go home and check out the scriptures to see if, it's, if what I'm saying tonight is true. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 5. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. Look at those scriptures and see about the warnings of God. Does the Bible say thou shalt not gamble? It doesn't. Does the Bible warn about the practices around that? Sure does. Samson was wrapped up in greed. He's looking around at this seven-day-long party, and he's seeing all this money that's going out and going out and going out. How can I recoup some of this? I can get 30 changes of garment, and, and I'm going to win this bet. 
I think there's a better way for you to go through life and have your needs met than lining up at Weigel's for a lottery ticket. I think the better way to do that is to trust God who said that he would provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'd I'd go God's way. I don't want to oppress poor people. And you... Check it out. If you'll, find a, if, you'll, if you'll find an honest survey, check out the people who are buying the most lottery tickets. They can't afford them. I like what Mark Twain said. He was talking about gambling one time. I wish there, there are aspects of what Mark Twain says sometimes. I wish I had a, a mind like his, his wit. He said, there are two times in a person's life when they should not gamble, when he can't afford it and when he can afford it. That pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? Don't you like that? There's two times a person in, in a person's life when he should not gamble, when he can't afford it, and when he can. Satan's or, or Satan, Samson's greed here is evidenced in the fact he's just wanting to get stuff. And he's willing to gamble with it. And so that's the third point on there. His gall, his greed, and then his gamble. Verses 14 through 18. He tells them this riddle, and here's the riddle. Out of the eater, that's the lion, came forth meat, that's the honey. Out of the strong, the lion, came forth sweetness, that's the honey. Now, you and I know exactly what that riddle's talking about, don't we? Do you know why we know the answer to his riddle? Because we know about the dead lion. But do you remember what the Bible says about him when it talks about uh, when he killed that lion... He didn't tell his mom and dad he killed the lion. And then several days later when he comes back and that beehive is set up in there and he scoops out the honey and he gives some honey to his parents, he didn't tell them where he got the honey. Here's the thing. Nobody knew about that dead lion except Samson. So he's going to put a riddle out there about the honey coming out of a lion. And in his mind, he knows there's no way I lose this bet. I'm the only one that knows about the lion. So I, I can't lose here. He knew. I mean, I, he probably went back to his place and expanded his walk-in closet because he was so counting on 30 new suit of clothing. Nobody can get this riddle. I mean, I look at verse number 14 there, and if, if I read number 14 and I don't know what happened at the beginning of chapter 14 with that lion, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. And neither did his 30, his 30 friends in this. They did not have a clue as to what is going on. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy in some of these verses when you read verses 14 through 17. Let's see if you pick up on this. In verse number 14, he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that we have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it to me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it to my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it to thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her. Do you see some discrepancy in the 
chronology there. It says that they went three days and they couldn't figure it out. So they went to her and told her that she needed to get, she needed to get the answer for him. But the Bible also says that she was bugging him for the answer for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they come, those 30 men come to her, and this is what they tell her. We're going to burn you and your, your father and his entire family. We're going to burn you to death if you don't get that answer for us. And then they accuse her. They say, the only reason you brought us here was for him to give us this riddle, and we'd, have, we'd lose the shirt off our back. We would literally have to come up with clothes for him. So they threaten her, and they lose her. But do you see the chronology difference? After three days, they come to her. But she says she's been bugging them for seven days. Here's how, I, here's how I interpret that, how I see that going on. I think she wanted to know right away. I think she heard that riddle, and I think she was bugging him for seven days. Three days into it, those men figured out, well, we're not getting it. We're not getting it. And so on the seventh day, when they still don't have it, they come to her and threaten to burn her. For the whole week, she's been going going after her. Well, finally, she comes to him, and beyond bugging, it says says there in verse number uh, 16 that she wept before him. And in verse 17, she lay sore upon him. All right, lay sore, that's Old English, uh, that's Shakespearean English. That word means to oppress. Here's what happened. Over the period of that week, she wore him down. My teens, uh, when our kids were teens, they would try some of that sometimes. They'd try the ploy of trying to wear mom and dad down on something. She had a week here, and the Bible says she was, what, what's, what's the riddle? What's the riddle? And then she, it didn't work. Then she started crying. She turned on the tears. I have an aunt. She's in heaven now. My aunt, her name was Aunt Kitty. Aunt, well, her name was Priscilla, but she didn't like the name her, her parents gave her, so she went with Kitty. I was like, that was your option. Aunt Kitty, you know what her, her boast was? She never got a speeding ticket because she'd cry her way out of it. She got pulled over a lot because she had a lead foot, but she'd cry her way out of it. Well, this is the ploy that Samson's wife is going for here. She begged and begged for the answer to that riddle. She's not getting it, so she starts crying. And it's still not working, and now she's got these guys breathing down her neck, threatened to burn her to death. And so the Bible says she lay sore upon him. She began to oppress him. She is absolutely begging. She's driving him nuts. She is on him like crazy. The Scripture says in Proverbs 21, 19, it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. In Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And I think what he had, I I think what Samson had that whole week was his wife saying, are you going to tell me that riddle? Right before breakfast, they wake up, wake up, and are you going to tell me that riddle today? She's putting putting something down for breakfast. Are you going to tell me that riddle today? They're, they're doing this, they're doing that. Hey, what about, the, what about the answer to that riddle? For a week. She's crying, she's asking, she's going on and on. And the Bible says on the, in verse number 17, And it came to pass on the seventh day he told her, because she lay sore upon him. And then 
that's when things started going. That's when things started going terrible. Note what it says there at the end of verse 17. She told the riddle to the children of her people. Samson wasn't her people. That was going to be her husband. She really was not of Samson's people. She's a Philistine. She's a Gentile. In fact, she's an idol worshiper because the Philistines worship the Dagon God, half fish, half man. She's not following God. She went and told the children, it says, of her people. They came at the last possible minute, it says the seventh day before the sun went down at the beginning of verse number 18, and they answered the riddle, and Samson knew he'd been played. He'd only told one person about that lion, his wife, and he knew he'd been betrayed. So he says at the end of verse number 18, He says, if ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. He compares his wife to a cow. He said, this is what he says. She was a tool for these men to dig up this secret, just like a cow who pulls a plow and turns over the dirt. I know he's just at the beginning of his marriage But he had to know how it was going to go calling his wife a heifer. You don't have to be married very long to figure out that is never going to fly. He's implying some terrible things here. He's implying something about her intellect. He's implying something about his ownership of her. Whatever it is, Samson, that was a dumb statement. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. Apparently... Following God's word wasn't the only place he he lacked discernment. But that's exactly what he's saying here. He was livid. And he calls his wife a cow publicly. He is so angry, he calls her a cow. And he is so angry. Well, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's get the rest of the story. His wedding, his wager, the gamble, now his wrath, verses 19, 20. His wrath. What he does now, he does because he's angry. First off, the outburst of his wrath. He's got a huge debt to pay. It would have been so much better for 30 men to have to come up with 30 suits, but now one guy has to come up with 30 suits. He doesn't go buy them. He doesn't go have them made. He goes and finds 30 Philistines 20 miles away, and he kills them all without damaging their clothes. He strips those men naked, And he takes those clothes off of 30 dead corpses, takes those back to Timnath, and gives those guys their clothes. Hanging around with police officers just, it, 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 it has warped some of my sense of humor, all right? But when I, when I see this, when I see this, I think, you know, this Philistine down in Timnath, he's given a new suit of clothes, and he says, Man, I got a friend in Ashkelon. He has a suit just like that. Samson's thinking to himself, he doesn't any more. Can you imagine what those guys would have thought if they had known that the, the clothes they were now wearing came off of dead men? Imagine what they'd have thought when, when they found out that Samson had killed 30 Philistines to give them their clothes. His wrath, the outburst of his wrath. They had cheated him, something he didn't account for. He was mistreated. He was cheated out of that. 
And he responded in pure rage. And he killed 30 men for it. Mark this down. I I think I left this on your worksheet. I hope I did. Our reactions to negative treatment from others is a window into our heart. When you're mistreated, I'll watch and see how true your Christianity is. And when I'm mistreated, that's when you're going to see how true my Christianity is. We ought to strive to be like Jesus. If we're like Jesus, we will respond like Jesus when we're mistreated. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 2.23. This is Peter describing Jesus Christ. He said, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Samson had a heart that was committed to Samson, not to God. And when he got mistreated, he went off. He went, literally, he went on a killing spree. Killed 30 Philistines and stole their clothes. So that's the outburst of his wrath. What's the outcome? Second thing, the outcome of his wrath. He's so angry, he doesn't stay to consummate the marriage. This is important. He leaves the feast without consummating his marriage with his new bride. He leaves the feast and he kills these people. And then the Bible tells us instead of, instead of moving in to, uh, instead of moving in, look at the end of verse number 19. His anger was so great, he went to his father's house. He didn't take his wife with him. How do you know that? Because of verse number 20. One of those 30 companions that were brought down to stand up as a groomsman, one of them married his, well, it's not his wife anymore. That's the outcome of his wrath. The Bible says that she was given to one of those 30 men that Samson, and that's a weird way to say that, isn't it? Used as his friend. He wasn't his real friend. He just used him as one. There was no love toward that woman. There was no commitment to her. He was so enraged with what she'd done and betraying that riddle that, she, that he up and left. His, his future in-laws that would have been his in-laws, they didn't have a very good view of Samson's. They thought, well, we're not going to give him to, we're not going to give her to Samson. We'll just give her to this guy. Nobody here had a good view of marriage. All of them had a light view of it. All of that because of anger. The outcome of anger is always sad and even at times tragic. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 26 says, There's a time to be angry. Be angry and sin not. There's righteous anger. This was not righteous anger at all. Proverbs 14, 29, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Wise people are able to control their anger. When we act in anger like Samson did here, it's a mess. Here's a true statement. Anger destroys relationships, and that's proven here. He was on his way down the aisle, in effect, and all of a sudden... That marriage is over. Why? Because his wrath, as it says, the Bible, uh, his wrath was kindled. His anger was kindled. It's like a wildfire. You know that wildfire, is it still burning out there in Maui? I haven't seen anything lately on it. Here's the thing about a wildfire. Eventually, it's going to burn out. Whether or not the forest department drops water on it, it's going to burn out eventually. 
but the destruction it leaves in its path is terrible. And your anger will eventually subside, but what it leaves in its path is, is sometimes tragic. Anger destroys relationships. He had the outburst of his wrath, and he killed 30 men. The outcome of his wrath was he called off the marriage. Now, here's the part that I read right over, and you probably caught that, the ordering of his wrath. And it's at the very beginning of verse number 19. Did you see what the beginning of verse number 19 said? The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 of them. I blew right past that, that first part. When you go past that and you read that story, you say, wait, what did that just say at the beginning of verse number 19? The spirit of the Lord was on him? Let me, let me say this. It was wrong for Samson to erupt in anger and wrath, to explode in rage. That's wrong. It was wrong for him to marry this Philistine girl. God had commanded the Jews not to marry outside the nation of Israel. It was wrong for him to murder Philistines for clothes. And yet verse 19 says he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is going on here? This this act proves that our sin will not derail God's purposes. What is God's purpose in this whole thing? Would you... Let your eyes go back up to verse number 4 in chapter 14. And look what it says in verse number 4. We didn't touch on this a whole lot last week. It says that his father and mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he, God, sought an occasion against the Philistines. God was looking for something to spark a, 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 a confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines. It was wrong for him to explode in anger like Samson did. It was wrong for him to pursue this wrong relationship. It was wrong to commit murder. And yet God was going to have his purposes fulfilled. This proves that our sin will not derail God's purposes. He's going to do that. God stirred this up. Was it right for him to do those things? No. But God used even Samson's wrong actions to accomplish his will. I can't explain all of that. I just know that's how a sovereign God works. Well, well, good, Pastor. So does that mean that like Samson, I can do whatever I want to do and God's still going to do good things? Is that how that's going to work? Well, that's not really a good plan either. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue and sin that grace may abound? The very next verse. What are the first two words of the next verse? Do you remember? God forbid. Should I just sin so that God can do some great things? No. Should I sin so that God can show how forgiving he is? No. But God can take those wrong things that we do. I don't know how that all happened. Regardless of how it happened, Samson should have been attacking the Philistines for the glory of God and not for vengeance. But he was seeking revenge. And he, notice here, he doesn't get any cred from God. He gets no accolades from God. He gets no reward from God for killing them. And he's going to receive no reward in heaven for those either. But God simply overrode Samson's motivation and still used him for his purposes. So what do I want you to take away tonight? Can we close with the four sentences that, were, that, uh, that are your conclusion, then we'll be done. The point of this whole text is 
Maintain the condition of your heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Isn't that a good verse, Proverbs chapter 4? Maintain the condition of your heart. So four things to take away from this tonight. The first one, don't flirt with evil. Do not flirt with evil. The second, guard against harboring anger, animosity, and unforgiveness toward others. If you keep those things in your heart, eventually you're going to blow up on somebody. And probably not the person you're mad at. Guard against harboring anger, animosity, and unforgiveness toward others. Third, do not seek gain that only comes from others' loss. Do not seek gain that only comes from others' loss. And then the fourth one, I'm saying it again, but it's maintain a tender heart toward God. Samson's heart just kept getting harder and harder and harder toward God. And he finds, and he's, it's going to get worse. He finds himself doing stuff he never thought he would do, but he did. Watch, watch out for your heart. Guard your heart. I told you when we started this study uh, at the very beginning, Samson is going to show us most all the time what not to do as children of God. Classic example here tonight. He's involved in activity after activity after activity that violates God's command to him, and he does so hard-heartedly to the point where he's joking about his rebellion. Don't get there. Maintain a tender heart toward the things of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saying.